0: February 17th, 2013, uh, lecture discussion number 99 on the book of Romans. <coughs> 99 is, you know, when I wrote that uh, the other day, it's hard to believe that this is the 99th lecture number, but uh, I, as I said, I'm not going through the book of Romans very fast. In fact, I'm not getting past Romans 5.12, and for a while, and you'll understand today why we're not getting past 5.12 of Romans, because of the scientific implications of it, amongst other things. But uh, we got miles to go before reaching chapter 6, and I'm already on lecture number 99. So if this is the first one that you've ever attended, there are 98 that led up to this one. Uh, Don't feel bad if uh, the people next to you pretend they know more than you. Uh, They're faking, but don't feel bad if they pretend in a way that intimidates you. Uh, I, like I said, I'm not going to get now through the Book of Romans in one phase. It's, it's gone on. It's going to be a 100 next week. I'm going to have to suspend it for a little bit of time because I'm getting, a, a, I'm getting uh, swamped with special requests that are coming in, and even at a furious pace from all over the world. It's amazing, by the way. I even have a guy in Nigeria I need to deal with, um, help him with his question. And that's all from the internet audience, and, uh, and i got a big, large pile now, and I'm starting to feel guilty about setting them aside and not addressing them. Note the, uh, the, the distinction there. I'm starting to feel guilty. So what I'm doing is I'm starting the process of beginning to feel some pangs of guilt. I'm not actually anywhere near remorse. Uh, but <laughs> I'm going to have to take these questions on. And today I'm going to take on the one that is coming the most. And it continues to be sent in from uh, different listeners from diverse locations, uh, which indicates that I need to improve my explanation. I didn't do a high degree of difficulty on it. I just put it out there because I knew the high degree of difficulty was coming. And I just wanted to make sure that you knew it enough to, to go find it yourself if you wished. And many of you have. It's the blood chemistry issue, as you might have deduced. I don't want to take up the whole day today with it or the whole extra time today with it. I have other things that I need to do today. But I'll revisit it a little bit and offer some more information uh, for those who are seeking further complexity. All you folks on the Internet, uh, Janet from Oklahoma and Glenn from Texas, come to mind the most um, they are uh, very interested in this subject uh, more so. But I've had at least, uh, I've had a half dozen to a dozen questions now on it. And you might remember that once we reached Romans 5.12, I emphasized that the Bible is powerfully specific. It says something that is powerful and very, very uh uh, focused. You can't, it doesn't stutter. There's no way you can misinterpret it. Sin and death was transmitted to the world through the man. The one man transmitted the death. So it didn't come from any other. Once the man was poisoned, then he spread that poison. The woman did not. Now, obviously, that leads us into the biological sciences and the chemistry of the blood. It's important to understand that the woman was poisoned and the man was poisoned, and here comes a big duh, by the same poison. But they were affected differently. The Bible says it is the man who transferred the death to their children, Romans 5.12. The man is the death transfer er Is that a word? Transfer-er-er. How many errs is it? That he is. There's something different. Here's another big dub. There is a difference between the man and the woman. That is a uh, delightful shock to today's media. And that difference immediately led... Almost all the ancient scholarship and most scholarship today to conclude that death comes through the sperm and not the ovum or the egg. And that is where we are in this question. Again, that's the oldest recorded position, position from the beginnings of the church. So, the obvious question. Here we are. How is it that the ovum is not contaminated, is not poisoned in the way that it would transfer death to the child? Only the sperm. In other words, the ovum is, is, once it is not poisoned until the sperm hits it. And by the way, the ovum is 44,000 times the size of the sperm, about, uh, I'm sorry, what did I say? 44,000? I meant 14,000. 14,000 times the size of the sperm. So the tiny little sperm is bringing the death. Now, how's it doing it? What is in it that causes it? And how is it that the ovum is not in that position? Not contaminated. And why is this so if it's so? Why aren't both of them equally responsible? Didn't the woman sin first? Wasn't she deceived? All true. So why is it that she is not, if this is so, why is it so? I had a little girl when I was uh, first starting to teach in my class. And um, I was teaching uh, sixth grade science. And and, uh, I made some statement. I can't even remember what it was. And uh, the the little girl, um, I asked her, I said, do you believe that that is correct? And she was looking at me like I was an idiot, pretty much like I'm normally looked at. I'm used to it now, but in the, at that time it was all new to me. And somebody, she was, and I said, "Do you, do you, uh, do you have a problem with what I said? Do you disagree with me in any way?" And we can discuss it in front of the class because she had that look like, "I'm not buying anything either." saying. and uh, so uh, she said to me, "If you say it is so, it must be so." And I've never forgotten that. I don't know why I brought it up. Because why is this so if so? That must be one. Again, both Adam and Eve ingested the same poison. How is it only Adam transfers the dying process? I'm saying to you that if the sperm was not contaminated, there would be no dying process in human beings. So how is it that that is the case? How is it that Adam transfers the death generation element, if you will. I, I, in other words, death and sin begins at fertilization, it, um, as does life. So life begins at conception, but also death, the death generator, also goes there. Now, obviously, it's over a period of time. The life cycle or the life force overcomes the death force for time. But eventually, that death generator uh, succeeds and wins, prevails. The poisoning of Adam results in his sperm, all male sperm for that matter, being the carrier, the mechanism the, that introduces the death generator into the child. That is what Romans 5:12 is saying. And it didn't stutter. Arthur, uh, and I got to spell it right. Arthur C. Custance called this the moto. Let me make sure I get it right. Morto. Sorry. The mortogenic factor, the intrusive factor that causes the cell structures to die. Now, for those of you who are familiar with this theological debate, you will recognize the initial aspects of the virgin birth now coming into the forefront. If if it is true, and the Bible says it is true and says it with as much power as it possibly can, that the man is the one that introduces death, then I cannot let the man introduce death in any way to the Messiah. So the Messiah must not have a man involved, and there's the virgin birth, right? And the virgin birth is right off the top in Scripture. It's in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman. It's in Isaiah. Isaiah. Clearly, God, being the omniscient creator, knew that the cells of the ovum were not affected by the poison. They are, if you will, you want to think of them this way, biologically isolated. Something that biological sciences have only recently determined. What's the obvious question? How did Moses know that? You have to wrestle with, how did Moses get this right, perfectly right? How did Paul get this right, perfectly right? How did Isaiah get it right, perfectly right? How did they know? They have electron microscopes, petri dishes. This is going to lead you to research something called somatic and germ cells. Let me write those on the board for you. So you can begin... Your own little journey without me. When am I going to bring this back up again? This topic. Yes, that's exactly right. I'm going to bring it up on Ishtar. Because we're going to have a visitor. And I can't wait. Something secret sensitive. Germ cells. Hey, That. You're, you're going to. Let me put the rest of them on. Yeah, chromosomes. I can't spell so good, so I have to look at it while I'm doing it. How many O's in chromosome, Plasmogene. gene, uh, mitochondrial DNA? Drill. And the like. That's what we have to do on Easter Sunday, or what I like to call first fruits. Because it is first fruits. There is no such thing as Easter Sunday or Ishtar Sunday or whatever you wish. It is a silliness that has infected the church. Uh, that uh, should immediately be dispensed. But uh, you can wander off on your own on this. You don't need me, but if you prefer to wait, like I said, I'm going to be delving into it on uh, the highly anticipated first fruits lecture. As I said, I do try to save the uh, seeker sensitive material for when we have a visitor. And uh, nothing screams seeker sensitive more than reproductive science. Molecular biology. At least I won't be doing Leviticus or quantum physics this year, right? So it's a lot better. Everyone loved Leviticus. Uh, but this is essentially, you have to, you're, you're into Mendel and genetic engineering and you're into uh, um, uh, cellular DNA. But for today, just try to remember this one thing. And this is for the people on the internet that are asking me how to approach this problem. They don't want to wait and I don't blame them. Um, Don't worry, uh, you folks on the internet. I will not do what Bill the Cow did and get in an airplane of any kind uh, that wanders around the state. So I hope to, but I, I will continue to drink Diet Coke. So I am running out of time. You're wise to move ahead without me. But just remember this one thing for today. As soon as germ cells and somatic cells, okay, are identified as distinct cell lines, in the developing embryo, as soon as we can identify somatic and germ cells, the germ cells segregate themselves from the somatic cells. They do not intermingle; they remain separated. It, that that fact, this fact of biology, solves and uh, the, and provides the purpose of the virgin birth and solves Romans 5:12. Once you understand. Somatic cell and germ cells, you are on your way to understanding Romans 5.12 and the virgin birth. Two of the greatest mysteries in scripture. You'll know it. That's why I'll do it. One, I'll probably hand out little somatic cell charts and germ cell charts and all the different things to everybody that comes in. It'll be cool. very important I'm trying I'm being a little bit silly but I, I shouldn't be it is very important it's that fact of biology again that, that that provides the purpose of the virgin birth. It's that fact that allows for Christ to be on the throne of David without any of the sin of Mary. And you know, don't you, that this a big problem for the church has been because they did not understand somatic cells and germ cells. Many people, an entire, entire denomination, I won't identify you, figure it out, but they had, they came up with this concept. Listen, how is it that Mary who, if she's sinful, she has to pass on her sin to Christ. She has to. How could he be, in, if she's got her DNA and can be on the throne of David, that's solved, but then he also must have her sin. So she must be what? They will tell you. Sinless. It's called the Immaculate Conception of Mary, right? And so they, they've come up with the, you can follow their logic. And they also say, by the way, and this is a recent development, they say that she has to be psychologically sinless as well. We'll get into that as time goes by. But you can understand why they would say she must have also been conceived immaculately without any sin, or she would have transferred it to the child, and we can't have that. And they're right about that. We can't have that. But they didn't know Pius IX in 1854. They didn't know about somatic and germ cells. You know. Well, you took biology in high school, I assume. You should know. They teach you this in Sunday school class? Go back with a hammer and beat them. By the way, we have more. Never mind. I almost got myself in really big trouble. Everybody should know this. It's in the church today. It explains the virgin birth, the reason for it, and it is extraordinary. And now this is, solves the problem that I get all the time. The question that I get all the time is that how can Christ not have Mary's sin in him? And uh, the reason is, is because of the somatic separation from the germ cells. And the, So... Uh, I'm not frustrated with the uh, with the immaculate conception of Mary, because I at least see them trying to solve the problem. They just didn't know, they didn't trust the Bible, though, and they added some extra biblical uh, imagination. The Virgin Mary needed no special intervention. She did not need to be sinless. All that was necessary that it was that she, her ovum, be fertilized, not by a man. So, how was her ovum fertilized? By the Holy Spirit. Problem solved. No mortogenic, mortogenic generator. That's a, that is a redundancy. Mortogenic means the death generator. It's merely a matter of understanding, again, let me keep pounding it in, the difference between the somatic cells and the germ cell, germ cells and the puberty process. That's very important to know. Where the triggers are. With regard to the death generation, there is no need to invent a mechanism by which the ovum of Mary escaped the poisoning. All that is required is a basic understanding of two uh, principles. Let me put these on the board as well. Now, I'll erase this. I'm going to have to put more stuff on the board today. So I'll put this over off to the side and you can memorize it and go home. And tell your friends, okay, we have to go to that weird guy's church on Easter, which doesn't really, isn't really a word in the Bible. The Bible is Passover. But we have to go to his church on Passover. Well, it really won't be Passover. It's actually first fruits. We have to go to his church on first fruits because he's going to talk about this. And we have to know it. The continuance. of the germplasm. It was a scientific discovery at the turn of the century, 1900s. And then we have to know about the mortalization of somatic cells. So there's your Easter, which doesn't really exist. Your first fruits, you get your little, your little handout when you come in. The title of today's sermon is The Continuance of Germ Plasm and the Mortalization of the Somatic Cell Life. Okay? And it goes again without saying that Moses and Isaiah and Paul got it perfectly right. How did they know that the key is in somatic and germ cell characteristics? How did they know that? Microscopic biological truth perfectly right thousands of years ago. Paternal sperm is the death generator, the mortogenic factor verified by science, but always known by theologians. Always been in scripture. Never a doubt. So, again, be prepared for a more extensive explanation. Study ahead, read ahead, you'll be stunned. While the rest of the churches are handing out eggs and chocolate rabbits, celebrating the Babylonian Festival of Fertility, Ishtar, we're going to be celebrating the amazing structures of human cell design. Because God worked this out. Lucky God. He got it right. He's so lucky. So no rabbits and no chicken eggs. Instead, God's solution to free will, death, and sin. Okay. Just needed to cover that enough to quiet them down on the internet for a while. Throw them a bone. That's what one of them said. Please, just tell me how you got to where you got. To. I've read what you've read. I don't get it. So there's your there's your little bone. They'll write. They won't matter to them. They're relentless. That's right, Jennifer. It's you in Arizona. Relentless. Okay, meteors, Pope, asteroids, and other noteworthy stuff. I've also received a whole bunch of mail this week. As soon as the Pope uh, chose to resign, uh, there's a great deal of interest in the papacy. Um, and the interest is, is um, there's been a a long time. Um, It came from John Paul. uh, Is that the second, right? I think so. John Paul II. John Paul I died very quickly. I I don't know my papal history as much as I should. But um, anyway, he he had a a belief, I'm fairly confident, if not him, the people around him, that the pope that replaced him would be an apostate pope. That didn't turn out to be true. Uh, Benedict is certainly not. But, uh, they believed that the, 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 sooner or later a, an apostate pope was going to, um, come to the forefront. And it's been a common concern for quite a while. Uh, if you will, you can call it a prophecy, so to speak. Uh, at least it's a prediction. And that, and, and, and the question's not new. There have been apostate popes throughout history. So what makes the concern so great this time? and what has changed if you will is the reemergence of the nation of Israel in 1948 49 if you will 1967 or 72 however you count based on the taking of Jerusalem six day war and all of those things and some people count from different areas but almost everyone sees that Israel reemerged as a nation in 1948 or 49 coupled with the reemergence of the nation of Assyria when did that happen that happened under the presidency of George W. Bush. So we have the reemergence of Israel, and now we have the reemergence of the nation of Assyria. Those are Isaiah 19 prophecies. Those are big deals. Uh, especially when you see the coalescence of Turkey, Iran, Germany, France, Egypt, Syria, Libya, Russia, all of them against Israel. They are aligning, coalescing against Israel. So I have those three factors and now if I get an apostate pope, that makes it more significant. In other words, this confederacy of the north, Ezekiel 38 coming into form, the nation of Israel has been in existence now uh, almost 70 years. The reemergence of the nation of Israel within the last 15 years, and now we add to that an apostate pope. He becomes greatly significant. That's why they're writing me. And I've said many times, the world will witness uh, a singular worldwide governmental system, and a singular worldwide religious system, and a singular worldwide monetary system. We're going to witness that. That's called uh, governmental Babylon, ecclesiastical Babylon, and economic Babylon. And by the way, as an aside, there will be no evolutionary atheists in the world once ecclesiastical Babylon comes into existence, the worldwide church. When that happens, no atheism anywhere. Everyone is a worshiper of someone. You're either a worshiper of the true God or you are the worshiper of the Antichrist, but you're a worshiper. There is nothing left of the evolutionary philosophy. So I I would say to you that... uh, that's why people are, again, let me repeat that, people are concerned because they see Israel, they see Assyria, and they see this confederacy of Ezekiel 38 starting to form, and now they think an apostate pope comes along. Uh, how close are we to governmental Babylon, ecclesiastical Babylon, economic Babylon? I submit that it's obvious that those are also forming. Certainly, economic Babylon is formed. We're almost a cashless society. We don't require any cash anywhere. In the world. It's instantly uh, technologically uh, transferred. We have instant. Uh, you used to have to go into the airport and take your Canadian dollars. And, and exchange them for American. Or take your. If you were overseas. That's done instantly now for you. They just transfer it for you. Take out their little percentage. It's a lot like the poker table at Vegas. Is uh, Never mind. And I get myself in more trouble. Microchip technology, GPS, all of that stuff, uh, that that is shrinking the world and increasing the governments all over the world. You couple that, those three... Uh, uh, the the economic ecclesiastical and and, uh, governmental with the destruction of the confederacy that attempts to invade Israel those countries that I mentioned they're going to invade Israel so you put all of that together and and uh, and those are things that we should always watch for they are the great signs uh, of the end of the age of the Gentiles all that aforementioned that I gave you that's a great sign that the, those are great signs that the age of the Gentiles is almost uh, at hand. It's near. And I said a few months ago that I believe in the past it was, you know, down the street, if you will, uh, from, using an analogy, maybe a mile away. Now I think it's in the parking lot. It's that close to us. We're getting very, very close and that's why people are starting to write me when, whenever rocks start uh, falling from the sky. Because that's what happened. A meteor hit Russia. And everyone went, ooh, a meteor hit Russia. You see, God uses rocks. They are his weapon of choice at Ezekiel 38. Russia is one of the Confederates. And they got hit by a rock. And everybody thought that was very interesting. Not everybody, but a lot of people did. God, as I said, he's going to use rocks. When he destroys that confederacy, he used rocks in Joshua 10. It's a phenomenal story. He used rocks more famously uh, uh, in uh, 1 Samuel 17. He put a rock into the forehead of Goliath. Now that, That, by the way, was a pretty impressive velocity. And that's a rock that has to go through a helmet and embed itself into the head of a monstrous man. From a distance, who knows? Quite away ways, I assume, what's the feet per second of that rock? Those are the kinds of things that I like to know. I, I'm going to estimate that in order for it to do that, it had to and not break apart. It had to be traveling at a very high velocity, certainly uh, as much as 5,000 feet per second. So that was a supernatural event. It may have been faster. Remember, very important to know that David took the sword of Goliath, which uh, had to weigh a lot. And he cut his head off with it. And he took the head back to Jerusalem and buried it on a hill. Very important to know that. Because that's the exact spot Christ made himself be crucified on. That's as you know. Okay. Those three. Ezekiel 38, Joshua 10, 1 Samuel 17. Those are prominent. And uh, that's where God uses rocks. So the question really becomes, was this a rock? Or was this a rock? Does that make sense? There's a difference between rocks. Know the difference between your rocks. At Ezekiel 38, God makes it very clear that he's the one throwing the rocks. In other words, the rocks, when he destroys that confederacy, are not falling rocks. They're thrown rocks. They're aimed rocks. Just like 1 Samuel 17. Just like Joshua 10. And God is really good at throwing rocks. He doesn't miss anything, ever. Duh. And this is a message, by the way, when he throws the rocks at Ezekiel 38. When that confederacy is, is destroyed, it's a message to Israel and it is a message to the enemies of Israel. And it is quite similar indeed to Joshua 10, where God ended up. The moving of tongues against Israel. Joshua 10.21 says this. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel after God came and threw rocks. He was shutting people up. No one dared say anything about Israel after God threw rocks. That's going to happen again in Ezekiel 38. When that confederacy comes, he's going to pick them off with rocks. Now, to understand how the description is in Joshua 10, you had the Israel army and infantry fighting the the, uh, the uh, Canaanite the occupiers, if you will, of the promised land. And the men were entangled. Hand-to-hand combat. And God started throwing rocks. And it says every single soldier of the Israeli infantry army returned. No casualties, no wounded. He's really good with his rock drawing. He put a rock everywhere he wanted it, missed an entangled hand to hand combat. Soldier. That's what he did, and that's what he's going to do at Ezekiel 38, when this massive army of Turkey and Russia and Iran and Syria and parts of Egypt and Libya, and you know they are all lined up, aren't they, right now? Every one of them, they're all lined up. They are ready. If something happens to where they think they can send a massive infantry, they're going to do it. It's coming, and they're going to fly their planes, and they got their tanks, and they got their ships, and they got their, uh, their their missiles. Iran is very proud right now of its missiles and its nuclear capability. And what's God going to do to all of that? He's going to hit it all with rocks. He's going to knock a missile out of the air with a rock. An F-16, how fast does it fly? Mach one and a half, 700 miles an hour. He's going to hit it with a rock. So how fast is that rock going? baby? That is one mighty fast rock. That's what he's going to do. Tear them to pieces. And Israel is going to go back again to Joshua 10.21. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel after that. That is coming. We probably get to what? We get to see it. On cable news. We probably get to see it. And that's why people were writing me. Wow. He threw a rock? Did he throw a rock or was it a falling rock? I personally believe it was a falling rock. If it was a thrown rock, we would know. It would have hit something really cool. But Russia just got a glimpse of what a rock can do. It was amazing. If you see the uh, YouTube video of what. That meteor did. And we have seen meteors, not seen them, but we've seen the results of what they can do as well. And Russia just got a glimpse. And we puny humans are defenseless. We got a wonderful military, a fantastic uh, uh, capability, and we cannot defend ourselves against thrown rocks. We're absolutely helpless. Not a thing we can do. Okay. That's the end of phase two of the three phase lecture today. I want to spend our remaining time, which isn't very much, you've almost made it. I want to spend our remaining time this morning on the words, has become. Uh, This is Genesis 3.22 on the board, and it's very, very important because of what's here. There's just so much information here that it's almost impossible to get through it in a lifetime. It starts out, as you know, with behold. Whenever God says, behold, that is like a big stop sign and you stop right there because something very critical is about to be said, something that is amazingly complex. And behold, the man, not the woman, not the angels, not Satan, not the animals, the man. Behold, the man has become, in other words, there's a transition here. He wasn't always like this, but now he is. He has become like, wow, one of us. Obvious question again to repeat it. Which one of us? Because that's the triunity of God. Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good from evil. God wants to make sure. That you know, that verse, he made special efforts to make sure that we all knew it. And I want to focus on the has become today. Has become provides a very important clue to the definition of the image of God in Genesis one twenty six. Let me read that to you. Then God said, let us make... A man, according to our likeness. So Genesis one twenty six, Genesis 3.22, have man, like, and us. And I emphasize us, man, and likeness, so you would start to compare them. 126 to 322 of Genesis. You see, it's quite common for theologians to insist that the definition of our image in 126, let us make a man in our image, the definition of what our image is, is what? What do they tell you that it is? Man is made in God's image and therefore he is what? They claim or they insist or they tell you that uh, our image means that man was made immortal. That is, immortality, 126, not on the board. You'll have to remember it. That's very common. Our image equals immortality, they will say. The theologians who uh, say this, by the way, they always have an incorrect interpretation of Ecclesiastes 3.21. Ecclesiastes 3.21 is a rhetorical question that answers itself. That's something that, for some reason, just seems to escape people. I don't know why. Anyway, the people that say that in our image or our image equals immortality, that that is an indication of immortality for human beings. People who say that, um, they add the error of uh, 321 Ecclesiastes almost every time to Genesis 126. And, and then they conclude that in our image means that humans are immortal. A really quick aside on Ecclesiastes 321. 321 Ecclesiastes says, who knows? That's how it starts. Who knows? What's implied there? No one knows. That's the rhetorical question. It answers, who knows? Rhetorically, no one knows. 321 Ecclesiastes is concerned with physical matter, not spiritual entities. And that's a very common mistake. So don't make that mistake. Oops, did I skip a page? Nope. So I'm doing so good I can take some action. So they make a mistake in Genesis 1.23. And that is, and and that's really too bad. Because it can't be, our image can't be talking about immortality. Let me illustrate the other mistake that's always made at Genesis 1:26. Okay, Genesis 1:3 says begins with then God says, or then God said. Genesis 1:6 begins with then God said. Genesis 1:9 begins with then God said. You can start participating. Genesis 1:11 begins with. Then God said. Genesis 1.14, then God said. Genesis 1.20, then God said. Genesis 1.24, then God said. Genesis 1.26, then God said. Let us make a man according to our likeness. Essentially. Then God said, 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 then God said. What's the obvious question? It should leap off the page and... Careful, Bill. And smack you right in the forehead. Don't do it, Bill. Again, a cool scar. I can see it from here. Don't get a hat ever again. The obvious question, all those then God says, obvious question should smack the reader. Who is God saying this to? Who's hearing him say it? Half the time, there is no man or woman to hear it. There's animals, and then who else is listening? God is not having to say it aloud so that he can hear himself talk. He's God. So why is he saying it aloud? He clearly is saying, whenever God says something aloud, it is always for the same reason. It's never for his sake. It's for whose sake? The listener's sake. Who's listening? The angelic realm is listening. Satan's listening. Remember, Satan wants to be like God. Then God said, let us make a man in our own image according to our likeness. You think that passed Satan's? It did not. So who is listening? That's the mistake that's always made at Genesis 1.26. They never noticed the then God said. They never asked who's listening. Who heard this? Let us make a man in our image. Obviously, they're all hearing it. He has a very loud voice, just as good as he is with rocks. He says, really, talk loud. He makes sure they hear it. And the angelic realm, who were already in a fallen state when he said it, were watching and listening. And I'll prove to you they were in a a fallen state as the weeks go ahead here. They're watching and listening as he says it. And they would naturally ask two questions when they heard Genesis 1.26. Put yourself in the angel business for a while. You're there. You all of a sudden hear God go through this. Then God said, then God said, then God said. You heard everything he said. He finally ends it with, let me get it perfectly right here. Then God said, let us make a man in our image according to our likeness. What's the two questions you're going to ask? You heard all the rest of it. Every time he said something, you're all there writing it down. And you're all, you're forming committees trying to figure out what he's trying to say because he's saying something for your sake, isn't he? Otherwise, he wouldn't say anything. They're going to ask a few questions. i can think thinking two really fast. What's a man? Let us make a man. Okay, we saw all this other stuff. It's pretty cool. It obviously isn't good enough because we're going to now make a man. One man. So after they ask, what is a man? What are they going to ask? Committees are going to get together and say, okay, what's a man? I don't know. What's the next question? Why is this man thing made in the image of the us? How is he in the image of the us? Huh? Yeah, that's what Bill's question was, wasn't it, earlier before the lecture? What do you look like, God? But there's certainly other questions. Whatever this man is, it's going to be different from the animals. How? Why? It's going to be different from us. How? Why? What can he do that we can't do? Why do we even need a man? What are all these animals for? Why aren't the angels doing this? Don't we have a union? Is this some kind of time? You know, when I was working for the railroad, it time claims. If, uh, if a, I don't know, what what causes me to do this when I should just finish the lecture? Um, yeah, I used to always go out on jobs with a, a mechanic, an automotive mechanic. Because generators, obviously, had diesel engines and then they had... Uh, electrical generator systems on the other end. And my job was to take care of the electrical generator. His job was to take care of the uh, mechanical side, the engine side, the diesel side. And we would be sent out because um, it was required. We didn't know what it was. At electrical generation, it could be failure in fuel or it can be failure in electrical. So you always had to have one or both of us there. And I was not allowed to help him, and he was not allowed to help me, because if you did, that was a violation of the union agreement, and he would time claim, and, and so we would be out there. And, and his name was Floyd Epperson, and I always had the drive. And Floyd was an amazing craftsman; he built a boat that was extraordinary. But he would light one cigarette with the other cigarette. That's what his habit was like. And he would fall asleep immediately as he got in the truck, and off I would go. we usually go ferry section or so, 300 miles away, get on the tracks, the railroad tracks, and get to wherever we had to go, Gold Creek, ferry section, which everyone, mostly those two, because that was where Weird Harold was and in, in uh, Gold Creek, and he used to stuff his freezers full of roadkill moose, and so his generator would always burn up. But anyway, that's another, that's a tangent. How did I get from angels to that? But Floyd would always trick me. Floyd always knew that I was a sucker. And he would be in there, and we'd walk in, and I could tell you within three minutes whether or not it was electrical or mechanical. And most of the time, it was mechanical because they wouldn't change the filters, or they would overload the generator, they'd burn up something mechanically. generator would always outlast the engine system. So, I got to, that's why I had to drive, by the way, besides I was younger. And Floyd would fall asleep, and I would watch that cigarette burn down. And, of course, I could wake him up. But I knew that cigarette was going to wake him up pretty soon, so I just let it happen, and he would be very upset at me. And but he would get even. And then we're up there one day, and uh, the, that's when he first did it to me. And I realized, oh, this will never happen again. But it happened to me lots of times because he was always smarter than me. He would say, "Coach, coach, coach, I need a hand." That was his trap. What do you need, Floyd? Uh I got to jack this generator, uh, this engine up, because you had to separate the generator from the engine and tear the engine out. And I said, okay, we got to. There's a clutch system. You've got to take your generator loose from the clutch. So I'd go in there and take my generator loose from the clutch. He said, hold. He said, okay. Can you hold the jack? And I'll go ahead and take the mechanical side away. I would hold the jack. What had just happened to me? I had a time claim. Because I'm not allowed to touch that jack. So I get back to town and there's a time claim. Eight hours. You know, time and a half overtime. 40, 50 bucks an hour. Plus penalty. And I'd be called in, you're not allowed to touch anything. That's how the government worked, by the way. That's federal government those days. You want those people in charge of your time? Or, oh, I mean, your health care? Yes, sure we do. We're all doomed. But anyway. I can think of the the angels. All of that to tell you, the angels are watching this and they're going, what's the purpose of these man things, of this man thing? How is he different from the animal things? Why do we even need one? we got angels. We don't need men. We, why do we need this physical reality? We have the spiritual reality. Well, they would know why you would need the physical reality. What would they assume immediately? The purpose of the physical reality is why? Spiritual reality has fallen. Satan has destroyed it. We know he got one third to fall. I always ask, how many did he get how many did he fool? So they would ask, what is the purpose of the physical reality and these animal things and these plant things and now this man thing, it obviously has something to do with us, and it does indeed. But the image question would be the one that would be the first one, because this is the first time, I believe, that something was in the likeness of God. And it's a man. The man is in the likeness of God and is in the image of God. Those two verses, 322 and 126, fit together. They're two gloves, if you will. They're two sides of the of the same question. Um, and the image question would be the one that would they would always wrestle with. And representation, just a... Take it on quickly before I run out of time. Representation is immediately on the table because image connotes representation. In other words, if you're in my image, then you are representing me. And uh, you'll see that with parents and sons and children and, and, and parents, mothers and daughters. You are a representative of your mother. You look like her in some regard. And if you act badly, then she beats you because you represent her, right? That's what we call good parenting uh some parents carry it too far obviously uh, we call those little leg parents but uh but again there is a representative image uh connoted uh or I'm sorry there's representation uh, uh, connoted uh, if you will in the word image the man would be god's representative on the new physical reality he would be god he would represent god to who specifically he would do what god would do for who The animals. How's man doing there? If you were an animal, would you like a different representative? Yeah, you would. They would vote him out. And so I'm saying to you, immortality is not on the table in my view. The angels had, every single angels have, all of them have immortality. So, if immortality is the is the definition of image, then everyone's in the image of God. And that's not what it is saying. Living souls have immortality. That's a given. Everything that is called by God, a living soul, has eternal existence. So, that can't be it. So, here's the hard part. What's the difference between image and likeness? Let me read it to you. Let's... Make a man in our image according to our likeness. What's the difference? What is image? What is likeness? Behold, the man has now. I'm going to add the word now in here so that you follow my logic if you think I have any. Behold, the man has now become like one of us. So the man has become the likeness part he has become. Took him a while to get there. What took him, how did he get there? He got there through what? The poisoning of Eva, the poisoning of himself, the renaming of the woman, the covering of the skins. Then he has become. He now has become. As soon as he was covered by the skins, after he renamed the woman life, he now has become like one of us. I hope you see how they fit together. I hope you begin to to, to fit them together yourself. The context of has become is clearly tied, isn't it, to good from evil. So the man has now become like one of us because he knows good from evil. So what good does he know and what evil does he know? And what's implied by that? It's implied that the angels do not know good from evil. They don't know it. The man knows it. He's the only one that does know it. And thus the most obvious of the obvious questions. What did Adam deduce? What did he solve? What did he know? What did he learn that the angels did not know? Did not solve? Did not learn? Did not deduce? He's got something they don't have. What is it? Including perhaps even Satan in that. Notice I said perhaps. Satan's a lot smarter than the rest of them. Adam is the only being in all of history of whom it is said was not deceived by Satan. Adam was alone in knowing something that and only Adam of all created beings knew it. And knowing it made Adam the has become. And next week, you will come prepared, knowing what it is, and arguing with me. If you don't, I will solve it for you. Let's rise, Jesus.